But today we're going to talk about a theology of food. And let me just begin by stating something that may be very obvious to you. I love food. Amen? I love food. I absolutely have a love affair with food. If you were to press me and ask me what my favorite food is, I would probably say Mexican. Mexican food is my favorite. I love the smell and the sound of beef sizzling on that iron skillet, you know, when the waitress brings it to your table. Mm, my favorite snack, of course, is chips and hot salsa. And don't forget guacamole. Oh man, I'm drooling just thinking about it. I love guacamole. I love Mexican food and St. Louis doesn't really have very many good Mexican food restaurants, does it? We do have good Italian food restaurants from what I hear. St. Louis is an Italian city, I think, and so I also love Italian food. In fact, one Christmas I got my wife a book on how to make your own pasta, like homemade noodles, and so we've experimented with that, and, and I tell you what, anything is good saturated in garlic and olive oil and, and, and heavy whipping cream, you know, it's so good. When I was single, the first kitchen utensil I bought for myself was a wok and a book on how to cook Chinese food. I love Chinese food too. I learned how to fry everything. <laughs> you can fry everything, do you know that? It's so delicious, I love Asian food. I love Indian food, I love Thai food, I love Ethiopian food, I, I love seafood, I love Cajun food and crawfish. Anyone like crawfish? Mm, I wanna suck on some heads right now. And I love sushi. I wish I could afford to eat sushi, <laughs> but I love sushi if someone is buying. And I guess it probably would be safe to say this. My love affair with food, my obsession with food, might be a bigger problem than I'm willing to admit. I mean, at home, my wife and I have this running joke, and that is when we go on vacation, or even if we're not on vacation, if we're in the car at any period of time at all, I'm always thinking about well, where are we going to eat? <laughs> where are we going to go? Like just a few weeks ago, we went to a pastor's conference in Lake of the Ozarks of all places. And I'm picking up the book in the hotel room and I'm saying, let's eat breakfast there. Let's eat lunch there. Let's eat dinner there. Let's eat breakfast. Oh, we're not going to be here for breakfast. Let's eat two breakfasts today. And I just wanted to eat at all these places. For me, vacation is about exploring new foods. And for my wife, it's about relaxing on the beach. <laughs> I just want to eat. So I must confess that my obsession with food might be, well, dangerous. In fact, that might actually be everyone's confession. Maybe all Americans need to make that confession that our love affair and our obsession with food might be more troublesome than we want to admit. I mean, we have entire channels dedicated to food. The Food Network, <laughs> I'd love to watch the Food Network. Food trucks and cupcake wars and my favorite, I think the dream job would be to be Guy Fieri and get to travel the world and just eat at the best restaurants in all the country. All the diners, the drive-ins and the dives, you know? Mm, that'd be good. So maybe we all need to confess that we have a problem with food. And so today we're gonna to talk about the theology of food and even a little bit behind that about fasting. What is food really about? And I hope that you'll be surprised that we'll see that it's all over the Bible. There actually is a theology for food. And here's, here's a quote to start us off. Um, John Piper says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but pie. Now, let me just let me make sure you understand his quote. He's not saying pie is evil, all right? Because I know Pie is not evil. I mean, that evil has a, that pie has a cross on it. You know, it's not evil. It's, it's good. All right. He's not saying pie is evil. Poison is evil. But he's saying that the greatest, what did he say? The enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but pie. 
It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but it's the endless nibbling at the table of the world. For anything, for all that Satan could do to destroy our relationship with God, God describes what keeps us from him in a parable that he tells in Luke about inviting. Remember, Jesus says, invite all these people to my diner, divide all these people to my dinner table. God describes what keeps us is a brand new piece of land, a yoke of oxen, or a new wife. So you see, the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. It's not poison, but pie. Food is extremely, extremely important. And so today we're going to talk about theology of food, but before so, I want to talk just briefly because undergirding food, once we see how important it is, we'll also see that fasting is important too. Um, since we just came off of a series on prayer, it seemed appropriate to maybe just tack on fasting a little bit. And also since we're entering into two seasons of feasting, maybe we might talk about food and fasting just a bit. So here's what I want to do tonight. Real quickly, I just want to take about two minutes to get technical and talk about the definition and the purpose of fasting. Take about two minutes there. Then I want to spend about 95 minutes on Christ because it's all about Jesus. Amen? I mean, if I could talk about food. I can talk about praying. I can talk about reading your Bible. I can talk about going to church. But if it isn't rooted in the gospel, if it isn't rooted in Jesus, then it's just fruitless, no pun intended, religion. <laughs> All right, so here's a couple of quick definitions real quick. In, he, in the Old Testament, is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament Hebrew has a word for fasting, and it literally is, means this, to cover your mouth. In the New Testament, the Greek word for fasting means to abstain for food. So let me just do a quick mashup real quick. Hebrew, cover your mouth. Greek, Abstain from food. The point is, if you're covering your mouth, ain't nothing getting inside, right? Ain't no food getting inside. If you're abstaining, ain't nothing getting inside. So here's a, here's a bold definition. The definition of fasting is simply this, to abstain from food. You knew that though, didn't you? <laughs> but I had to say that because we live in a place where we're so obsessed with food that we've actually redefined fasting from giving up, I don't know, iPods, technology, give up salt, Give up caffeine. How you doing? We just give up a little bit of everything, but not food. <laughs> and so what I wanted to do today was talk about the fact that it is giving up food. What is the purpose? Real quickly, let me talk about the purpose. The purpose is threefold. If you start to study um, fasting as a purpose, we'll see three things. First, the purpose is um, to discipline the body, to keep it in check for the delights of the flesh. This is St. Augustine. This is primarily the way that I grew up thinking of fasting, that you do it to discipline yourself. You stop eating, it hurts, it's discipline. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, thank you. I'm glad you're with me. <laughs> or number two, John Calvin says, fasting was to be used when men pray to God concerning a great matter so that the sole purpose of this kind of fasting was to render oneself more eager and unencumbered for prayer. We see this in the Bible a lot, right? So like David, when his child was about to die, he was fasting. And when the child died, he ate. And everyone said, why did you fast when he was alive? But then ate when he died. He says, well, because I was hoping that God would hear my prayers. Job, same thing. When Job had all the boils and all the diseases, he fasted. As we covered Esther recently, perhaps that was what they were doing when they were fasting. John Piper, however, gives us another definition of fasting or purpose for fasting. And he says, the birthplace... Of Christian fasting is homesickness for God. Honestly, just in the past few years, this is where I've begun to think about fasting. 
that the birthplace of fasting is homesickness for God. We fast. Yes, we can fast to discipline our body. Yes, we can fast to pray harder. But really we fast to see how hungry we are for God. It's very interesting. My, one of my favorite professors in seminary, he wrote his thesis on fasting. He'd always talk about it. Oh, I wrote my thesis on, my thesis on fasting. And I'm like, that sounds like the most boring thesis in the world. <laughs> and so one day I read it and I was like, this is fascinating. A lot of what I'm going to share today comes from that mess, that's, that, that thesis. He says, fasting points to something even more necessary for life than food. It's communion and dependence on God. Okay, so we've got the technical stuff out of the way. We know what fasting is. We know why we do it. But let's get to Jesus, and here's what I want to say about Jesus. The Bible says in many occasions that everything was created by Jesus, for Jesus, to Jesus, through Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so bread and food was created for Jesus and by Jesus. Hunger and thirst are also created for Jesus. And fasting, believe it or not, can be created by and for Jesus. All right, so now you're ready for the good stuff? This is, this is going to blow your mind. I mean, it, 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 it blew my mind. I hope it does yours as well. So let's talk about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus, and so food, believe it or not, is all about Jesus. <coughs> Have you ever thought of food that way? In order for me to tell this story, let's go all the way. What I want to do real quick is I want to I start in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible where God creates humans. And then I want to just kind of like go all throughout the Bible and Matthew and then all the way to the end to the book of Revelation and just kind of track this thread of food and build a theology, a Christ-centered theology on food. Let's begin with Genesis chapter 2. It says, And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you will die. So you might know the story. In the beginning, God creates the earth and everything he created was good, right? The trees were good. The plants were good. The food was good. Tell me that everything was good. Was it good? Everything was good. I don't know if you ever thought about this or not, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil was good too. It's not a bad tree. It wasn't a bad tree. I think sometimes we think, oh, that was a bad tree. No, 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 it was a good tree. In fact, that tree is in heaven right now, sitting next to Jesus. The Bible says it's a tree for healing. So it's a good tree. So God says of all the fruit and all the food and all the stuff that's on this green earth, it's all good. And you can eat all of it and any of it, but you can't eat it. The one good thing. So again, it's not poison. It's not the bad thing. It's pie. It's the good thing that gets in our way. So God starts off the beginning of all creation, the beginning of the first created man. And as soon as we exist, the first thing that happens is God says, don't eat something. Can you believe that? I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Early church fathers said that the first sin in the Bible was a violation of a dietary restriction. Our Christian fathers interpreted the fall in terms of failure to maintain a decreed fast. Have you ever thought of it that way? I have not. In fact, I think most of the time in modern day evangelicalism, when we talk about the original sin, for some reason, we always think of sex. Where did that come from? She ate an apple. It was nothing to do with sex. It had to do with a decreed fast. God says, don't eat. And they ate. That's what happened. Here's another way of putting it. Um, one scholar said, unrestricted freedom does not exist Man is called upon by God to exercise restraint and self-discipline in the gratification of his appetites. That's interesting. Think about this. God creates a man. 
He creates a woman. He puts them in a perfect garden. Everything is good. And God doesn't say, go eat all you want. Go drink all you want. Go do all you want. He doesn't say that. He says, it's all good and it's all for my glory, but you still have to restrain yourself. You still have to have discipline with your flesh. I've never thought of it that way, obviously. <laughs> but now I'm thinking about it. So you know what happens, right? Eve eats of that fruit that she's not supposed to. She eats it, and we call that the fall, right? She ate that apple, and it was a fall. And at that moment, here's what happened. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it the fruit and ate it, and she gave also to her husband, which was with, was with her, and he ate it also. So you see, it's a good thing. It was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was, what is the other word? Desirable for wisdom. It's a good thing. These aren't bad things. She ate a good thing. She wasn't supposed to eat it, and so she fell. So we all know what happens after the fall, right? The curse. Okay, so I'm going to read to you three curses. The serpent's going to get cursed, the man's going to get cursed, and the woman's going to get cursed. And as I read these curses, I want you to see, I want you to pay attention real closely with a magnifying glass. How much is surrounding food? <laughs> How much is about food? Let's look at this. God is going to curse the serpent first. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. Where I come from, that's food. I'm from Texas. <laughs> we eat cattle. <laughs> Medium rare, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, all right, I'm just kidding. Um, and more than every beast of the field, on your belly shall you go. Now, I don't know if this means the serpent wasn't on his belly before. Maybe it does mean that. Maybe he was walking along on his tail, springing. I don't know. But now he's on his belly. We all know what the belly's for. It's for food. So he's on his belly and he's slithering around. And while his tongue is slipping out like serpent tongues do, it says, and you will eat the dust of the earth all the days of your life. So because of the sin of tempting Eve to eat the apple, you're going to go on your belly, which is a food term, and you're going to slither around and eat dirt, eat dust. Got it? The sin is related to the curse. The curse is related to the sin. Look, look at man. This is unfortunate for us men. Then to Adam, whose name in Hebrew literally means man, he said, cursed is the ground because of you, and in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles will grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. That's bad. Not the sweat of your armpit. The sweat of your face. You're going to have to wring your food out of the sweat of your face. You will eat bread. Now, by the way, they don't have bread in the garden, do they? I mean, bread doesn't grow on trees. My wife makes homemade bread. I know the process. It takes three days. You don't, I don't think Adam and Eve at this point had figured out to you know, thresh the wheat and mill the yeast and raise the... They don't even have an oven. I don't know how... What, why, why is bread in the first chapter of the Bible? We'll get to that. We will get to that. By the sweat of your face, you're going to eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you will return. And now I'm remembering that the snake eats dust, doesn't he? So you see, for the man, God says, you're going to all your life, all your life, you're going to be, you're, it's all going to be about food. You're going to work, work, and work your fingers to the bone just to eat. 
And for some of us, it's just to eat good food like sushi. We're going to eat, 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 and then you'll die, and then you'll become food for a, for a snake <laughs> or a worm. It's all about food. Do you see it? Well, let's look at the, let's look at the woman. Don't forget the woman, right? It's all her fault anyway. Amen? Just kidding. Just kidding. To the woman, he said, here comes her curse. Let's see how it's related to food. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you will bring forth children, and your desire will be for Chuck, I mean, your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay, so you got me there. It doesn't say anything about food, does it? But it does, because her curse actually comes with a promise. And I didn't read it earlier, but the curse is connected to the serpent, and the promise is connected to the woman, and it's all about a seed. Do you remember that? It's all about a, a special kind of a seed. Let, let me read it for you. It's in, it's in the part of the curse of the serpent. It says, and I will put, God says, enmity, that means hostility, between you, the serpent, and the woman. And in between your seed, or his offspring, and her seed, or her offspring, and he, now we're talking about this offspring as a single solitary person with a, uh, a masculine, whatever that is, an adjective or whatever. He, personal pronoun, maybe. I forget. I, I'm just too hungry to think about English. <laughs> he shall bruise your, you on your head and you shall bruise him on the hill. And so we know what this means, right? This is, this is, we know from the New Testament that that seed is Jesus. That one day the woman will have an offspring and from a woman, from a virgin, will come a man named Jesus and he will crush Satan's with his foot. He'll crush his head and then he will be bruised and it's by his bruising that we'll be saved. He'll be bruised for our iniquities. He'll be wounded for our trespasses. And so this is all about Jesus and it's still related to food. And I'm gonna explain that to you the rest of the afternoon. If we jumped ahead, we could, and read that in the New Testament, Paul tells us that what the seed stuff is all about. In fact, if I really wanted to go through the whole Bible, I can say this concept of the seed becomes a little narrative that's woven throughout the whole scriptures. We have it here in Genesis chapter 3, and then just a few more chapters in Genesis, we have Abraham, and God promises him a seed. Remember that? And from that seed, he's going to bless the nations. Then later on, King David uh, is going to be promised a seed. And, and that seed's going to rule on his throne forever and ever. Again, Jesus. <laughs> Isaiah comes along, Isaiah chapter 9. You'll have a seed. A woman will give birth to a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. He's a seed. He's a root. He's a shoot. He's a twig. He's a tree. He's all coming out from Isaiah. And then Jesus shows up, and Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse that we just had, the curse of the law, in fact, having become a curse for us. Paul says he doesn't say, and to seeds, as referring to many seeds, like a plural, but to one seed, and your seed, he says, when he's quoting Genesis, and that seed is Christ. And so we've just spent about five minutes in Genesis. Okay, so we've got a snake, we've got a man, we've got a woman, we've got some fruit, and we've got a bunch of curses, and it's all related to food. So in a nutshell, no pun intended, let me say this. What happens in the beginning of our existence is life. We're given life by God. We make a choice to eat something we're not supposed to eat, and we fall. And then we have curse, and that curse is all surrounding food. Our life's going to be all about food, and it's going to be painful. Another way of saying it is this. Um, this is the way I want us to remember it tonight. Um, it's life, eating, and death. You're going to have a life, and it's going to be a life of eating. All you're going to do is eat. You're going to work for your eat, and you're not supposed to eat certain things, and then you're going to die. 
and you're going to become food for someone else to eat. Kind of creepy, isn't it? It's the truth, though, is it not? It's the truth. But then Jesus comes. And so I want to skip ahead to, let's just skip ahead to Matthew. Let's skip ahead to Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, can I just tell you, if you just take the time to study it, it'll blow your mind. There's so much happening with Jesus and food. I mean, I think Jesus would like fajitas too because he eats a lot and he loves chips and salsa, I think. And he's just, he's doing miracles with food. He's doing illustrations with food. He's creating a covenant with food. Food's a great big deal. Let me, let me just paint some pictures for you. When he opens up his ministry, the first thing that happens is this. He fasts for 40 days. Matthew 4 says, and Jesus, after fasting for 40 days, he was hungry. I think that's funny. I mean, I ate at 2 o'clock and I'm hungry right now. (laughs) Of course he was hungry. (laughs) You know, he was fasting for 40 days and he was hungry. Why does the Bible tell us he was hungry? It's like, duh. Just in case you weren't paying attention maybe. Or maybe so that we'll know that he's human. That he didn't just fast for 40 days as an angel. He fasted as a man and he was hungry. So let me ask you this. Raise your hand if you've ever been hungry. Raise your hands if you've ever been 40 days not eaten hungry. Okay, but can you raise your hand if you can imagine how hungry that might be? Pretty hungry. Someone sticks a steak in front of you, it's going to be tempting, right? Say you're right. Yes. Unless you're a vegetarian, but I'm still pretty sure you'd be tempted. (laughs) And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. There's this bread thing again. Turn rocks into bread. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I just want you to think about this for a second. Jesus is going to begin his ministry by fasting, by disciplining himself for 40 days. And then all of a sudden, he's hungry. And then all of a sudden, shows up a character we haven't seen in 4,000 years. The serpent. Where in tarnations has the serpent been for 4,000 years? Abraham and Isaac and David and Jacob and Esau, they didn't have to deal with this serpent. All of a sudden, he just shows up again. Have you ever thought about this? And he says the same thing. Aren't you hungry? Don't you want to eat something? Why don't you turn rocks into bread and eat that? I'm tempting you to eat something, then you're not supposed to eat something. (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? And Jesus says, no. Let me tell you why the story is in the Bible like this. Because Jesus is going to become the new Adam, the Adam that's able to do what Adam wasn't able to do. Adam was not able to fast from one stinking fruit. God didn't say don't eat. He said you can eat whatever you want, but don't eat that. So he wasn't even hungry. He was just tempted by it. Jesus is completely tempted for 40 days, and yet he still has the wherewithal to say no thanks. There's more to the story, actually. If you look at the three temptations that the serpent gives Jesus, the first one is make bread out of stones. Second one is, I think... If I remember correctly, the devil takes him up to a high place and shows him all these magnificent cities like Persia and Babylon. And he says, if you worship me, I'll, I'll make you ruler. I'll make you king of the world. And Jesus says, no, I ain't going to do that. And then another, the third one is, is the Satan takes him to the temple mount and says, why don't you throw yourself down? And then the angels will come and protect you because the Bible says this. And if the angels protect you, then everyone will know that you're God. And Jesus said, no, I ain't going to do that either. But if you think about it, all three of those temptations correlate to the temptations that Eve experienced. She saw that the food was good. She saw that the fruit was good for food. She saw that the fruit was 
a delight to the eyes. She saw that the food was um, good to make you wise. <laughs> Jesus saw that the bread could, I mean, the stones could be bread and that'd be good to eat. Jesus saw a delight to the eyes, all of the universe that was laid before him. It can be all yours, the devil says. That was appealing. And then the devil says, jump from the, from the temple mount and that would be um, a, a good way to prove how wise you are, that you are God, that you are good. It's just amazing to me. This serpent shows up after 4,000 years and does the same trick and Jesus doesn't fall for it. If I had time, I could take you to all kinds of stories in Jesus' life. There's uh, just a couple real quick. There's one where Jesus um, turns water into wine. <laughs> he's a you know, party trick with all around food. <laughs> there's another one where he's, he's sitting at a well, and there's a woman who wants, and he says, give me some water, and she gives this long story, and then he says, if you would ask me, you would ask me for water. If you knew me, you'd ask me, and I'm the living water. You could drink from me, you'll never thirst again. And she runs off and tells all of her friends, you got to meet this Jesus guy. And then while she's gone, the disciples show up and say, Jesus, we went by McDonald's and we got you a Happy Meal. You should eat it. And Jesus says, no, thanks. I'm not hungry. And they're like, we've been with you. You haven't eaten in days. You need to eat. And Jesus says, I have food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. Okay, here's this food motif again. Another time, Jesus, he feeds 5,000 people with a couple of fish. Another time, he feeds 10,000 people with a couple of bread and fish. In fact, on that time, they get in a boat, and Jesus says, you better be careful for the yeast of the Pharisees, and the disciples get all flustered about lunch, kind of like you are right now. <laughs> Start talking about food, and Jesus says, are you missing the point? There are 12 baskets left over. I'm not worried about food. I'm talking about something else. I mean, food is everywhere in Jesus' ministry. And then it kind of climaxes in this story here. Jesus says something crazy. He says, eat me. I'm the bread of life. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is what Christians believe. It's all surrounded around food. There it is. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and afterwards he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. You know that story, right? He's sitting there, he breaks the bread. He's, he blesses it, and he says, this is my body. Take, eat, this is my body. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and he raised it up, and he gave thanks. And he says, take, drink, this is my blood. Now, what's very fascinating, and you may not have known this. I'm counting on the fact that you didn't because it blew me away, is that the words used in the, in the Last Supper are the exact same words used in Genesis chapter 3 where she took it and she ate it and she gave it. In fact, one scholar said this, the New Testament account of the Last Supper uses the same verbs as the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it translates Eve's taking of the fruit in Genesis 3, 6, exactly the same. And these words are very difficult words. In, in Hebrew, they're called double vobs or double consonants, which means it's hard to say them. It's like a list, and you, 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 you have, it's like a tongue twister. You have to slow down to say, and she took it, and she ate it, and she gave it, and he took it thereof and ate it unto himself. You know, it's very difficult. Maybe you've been in a high church, like a Catholic church or an Episcopal church or something, and you've heard the priest come up, 
And he says, this is the body of the Lord broken for you. And on the night in, the Lord, in, the night in which the Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and after supper he broke it and gave thanks. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And likewise, he took the cup and he blessed it and said, take, drink. This. Have you ever listened to the pastor say that? And you're like, why are you repeating yourself so much? Why don't you just say, there's some bread and there's some wine, and pass it around. <laughs> but all of that, difficult language is there on purpose because it forces us to say, this sounds familiar. Isn't that interesting? In fact, if you put them together in a parallel, you'll see it. In Genesis 3, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Of course, he was with her, and he ate. And then Matthew 26, Jesus took the bread and he gave it to his disciples who were with him and said, take, eat, this is my body. And that's English, trying to make it sound natural. In the original language, it's un completely unnatural. So what's the point? Well, the point is, is that Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is that seed. Jesus is going to change the way we look at food forever. I could give you all kinds of examples. I can say Jesus is the, just like the tree in the garden. Jesus is going to crucify it on a tree, just like the single seed in the garden. Jesus is the seed of the woman. I can say just like in the Genesis chapter 3, there was talk of bread, and there's no such thing as bread yet. Jesus becomes this new bread, the bread of life. And I could keep going on with the story and come all the way to Revelation, right? Maybe we'll do that later. But what I wanted you to see is just simply this. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the ultimate seed of the woman. He himself dies on a tree to make himself the food that gives life to those who will take and eat. I mean, are you beginning to see how important food is? It's way more important than you ever thought. It's not just important for our physical bodies. It's important for our souls. Our spirits are deeply connected to food so much that Jesus says, I'm your food. If you remember, the curse went like this. Life, don't eat, or you'll be cursed. And that's what happened, right? Life, you give them a given life, don't eat, or you'll be cursed. Jesus reverses the curse, and he says, I'm going to die so that if you do eat me, you'll have life. Jesus totally reverses it completely. You... You have life. If you eat something you're not supposed to eat, you'll die. Jesus says, I'm going to die so that you can eat me, and then you'll have life. Man, this is blowing my mind. Raise your hand if it's blowing your mind. Raise your hand if you're hungry. <laughs> okay, so what I want to do is talk about this. Let's talk about it in our tables. Um, now that we've looked at all this amazing parallels and this uncovered deep theological truth about food, here's a question. How was this change and affect the way you view food, eating, and all of life? Bom, bom, bom. I mean, this is a good question. I mean, for me, this became, oh my gosh, really? I've never heard that. Genesis, uh, Matthew, the Last Supper, the food, 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 the curse is all about food. Wow, food's extremely important. No wonder I love it so much. So the question is, is how, all, how is all of this going to change your life? And how's it going to change the way you look at food and how you look at eating and how you look at basically all of life? All right, so let's talk about it for three minutes. Three minutes. Well, let's just conclude then. And let's say we conclude by saying it's really not the end of the story, is it? 
I mean, really, the Bible is the story of our lives. It's, it's, we, cre- we were created in the garden, and then uh, we were redeemed, and the curse is reversed throughout the, throughout the New Testament. And then, well, it keeps going. And it doesn't end really into the book of Revelation. And then we were created in Genesis, and we're going to be recreated in Revelation. And so the story of our humanity really is summed up in the Bible. And so we really kind of need to go to the end. Let's talk about the book of Revelation. Let me just show you something in the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, this is like the last chapter of the Bible. John says, Then I heard what seemed to me to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters. Don't know if you've heard that before, but I have, and it's loud. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! Did that sound like mighty waves of water? It sounded loud, yeah. <laughs> Grandma said, I heard that. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> well, I think you have to say it like it says, right? Like, th- oh, good, good, good. Me too. That's what we're going to hear in heaven is this great multitude screaming out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's worship, Dan, don't you think? It's loud. (laughs) Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come. And the angel said to me, write this. He wants him to write this. I want people to read this. This is important. I want you to write this down so that everyone will read it in the future. So that Mike can preach on it one of these days. You know, this is going to be important. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. The Bible ends with this giant supper. I'm thinking Thanksgiving, but a long gold table. <laughs> you know, how long? I have no idea. Maybe it's not even a t- maybe it's not even rectangle, you know, maybe it's like triangular or something. You know, I think heaven's going to be otherworldly. Maybe it's tiered. Maybe you know we're looking up and we're seeing, I don't know, I'm just trying to imaginate this big old table with food all over it and we're going to be eaten. You know, we're going to eat in heaven. It's never going to end. We're always eating, and we're going to be eating in heaven. Have you ever thought of that? I hope they have crawfish. You know, I hope that it's, you know, hope that God's not a vegetarian. I hope we get to eat. He's not, because he told Peter to eat it, right? He told him to. But here's the deal. You don't want to miss this supper. You don't want to miss it at all. It's going to be the best food. <laughs> I don't know who's cooking it, but it's going to be the best food. But maybe we're not really longing for that. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe we're so satisfied with cheesecake and peanut butter cups and ale (laughs) that we're really not hungry for this supper. So this brings us to fasting. How can fasting change the way we look at food, eating, and our lives? And how can fasting be used to draw us closer to Christ? How can we pursue Christ by, in a way, abstaining from food? And, and let me just ask this question, because some of you may be asking it. Should, the, should Christians fast? Does the Bible say Christians should fast? I don't ever see any Christians fasting, really. Um, let's look at what Piper says. Piper says, fasting poses the question, do we miss him? Are we hungry? How hungry are we for him to come? 
Listen to what he says. The almost universal absence of regular fasting for the Lord's return is a witness to our satisfaction with the presence of this world and the absence of the Lord. The almost universal truth that Christians just don't fast is proof that we're not hungry for God, that we're satisfied. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm satisfied. I've got a wife. I've got two beautiful, three, excuse me, three beautiful kids. <laughs> and I always say, I don't want to die. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to write a book maybe one of these days. I want to, I want to parasail. <laughs> I mean, I've got a bucket list. I mean, I don't want Jesus to come back, not yet, because I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied. And the things that I hunger for are, well, more of the things that I have, but just better, more gigabytes, you know? And Piper says, this isn't the way it should be. We should be hungry for Jesus. We should be saying, hallelujah, can't wait, to, you know? But then we're like, eh, hold on. I still got some more experiences to experience with my experiences, you know? I don't know if I've mentioned this or not before, but Jesus, when he created the whole covenant around a dinner, it was the, it was the Passover dinner right, where they eat certain foods to remind them where they've been and where they're going. And Jesus reverses or converts the Passover dinner by saying, now this bread is going to be symbolizing my body. And now this wine, which was symbolizing the bitterness you experienced in such and such place, is now going to be a covenant of my blood, which is going to be poured over you so that you'll be saved and you'll be healed. Jesus says to them, listen to what he says. He says, I tell you again, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you at my Father's supper. I find this fascinating. Jesus says, listen, I want you guys to eat as often as you gather. And if you've studied this food stuff, you'll know that it's more than just about bread and wine. It's really all about food. I want you guys to come together and fellowship. Be one body with one loaf and eat that bread and drink that wine and enjoy yourselves together. And when you're doing that, like we're doing right now, I want you to remember me. And we do this all the time at Missio Day. It's not just because I love food, but I think food is intimately connected to community. And so when we get together for community, we eat all the time. We're eating now. we got cookies on your table. This week, some of you guys came to my house, and we had some delicious food made by, by Karen Estes, some pasta. Oh, it was good. And then we had some pie with ice cream on top. And we talked until midnight about God. It was good. Day before that, all the men gathered around and ate some chicken wings. <laughs> it was good fellowship. And again, we talked to midnight. Jeremy and I were there late into the hours talking about God, and it was good. This week, the girls are going to go have some pasta at Macaroni Grill. Next week after that, we're going to have food at my house again. I'm making Chicago-style chili. You're going to love it. It's delicious. In fact, if you got my email today, every single advertisement on there is about food. We're going to go to a Christmas party. We're going to feed the homeless for Thanksgiving. We're going to, it's all about food. And Jesus says, when you gather together, I want you to eat, I want you to enjoy it, and I want you to remember me. But I want you to know this. I'm not eating it. I'm not drinking it. I'm fasting from it until I get to eat it with you again. So while you're enjoying it and you're remembering me, I'm fasting from it, telling you this is how much I want to be with you. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm abstaining so that I'm waiting for, to have it with you again. Jesus is fasting right now. So the question is, is are we supposed to fast as Christians? There was a time in Jesus' life where the Pharisees asked Jesus that, hey, how come your disciples don't fast? 
we're fasting. How come they don't? And the reason why they could ask that question is because at this time there was what's called a stationary fast. Every Tuesday and every Thursday you would fast until, until dusk. And so, you know, the Pharisee can see, yeah, it's Tuesday and I'm hungry and your disciples are over there chewing on some Koranica. What's going on? How come your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said this. He said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But listen to this. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. See, I think there are some people who say, well, the New Testament Christian is supposed to be full of joy and full of life, and we have freedom in Christ, and that is true, and you know I preach that often. But Jesus says when he's gone, we will fast. And so it gets us back to that same question that Piper asked. He says, fasting asks the question, do we miss him? Do we long for him? Are we hungry for God? So we need a kind of an application. I don't know. Good preaching usually has an application, right? As if it weren't already obvious. One of my favorite professors in seminary was fond of saying that heaven is a person and his name is Jesus. And so if Piper says fasting is birthed out of homesickness for God, I mean, I mean for heaven, we're, we're, you know, for our home, then, then really we're homesick for Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. We want to feast on Jesus. We want to be hungry for Jesus. And so fasting, I believe, helps to make us hungry for Jesus. There are times in our life when we can, can fast, which would, since it's so connected to our whole lives, food is, by abstaining from it will force us to long for and to miss and to hunger for God. Uh, by the way, the Advent season we're, we're entering into a season of Thanksgiving, which is all about feasting. <laughs> Thanks and eat for the giving <laughs> that you've given us. And then give food and we're going to feed the homeless and we're going to have people over and we're going to eat and we're going to have a good time and it's going to be wonderful. But then Christmas comes and what Americans have done has made it all about feasting again. We don't need two feasts in a row. <laughs> I don't. Advent is really supposed to be about fasting. Did you know that? Originally, Advent meant coming or arrival. And so we fast waiting for the coming or the arrival of Christ. We fast for four weeks, the four weeks of Advent, the four candles. Remember those little candles that they would light in the Episcopal church, you know? You'd light the, in the Methodist church. I grew up in Methodist church. We lit those candles. That Advent season was about longing and waiting and hoping and fasting. And then when Christmas came, we had 12 days of feasting, 12 days of Christmas with a partridge and a pear tree, right? But we've just kind of messed it all up. We start Christmas in September and we just eat all the way until well, St. Patty's Day, really. It's true. It really is true. St. Patty's Day just happens to be right in Lent when you're supposed to be giving up more things. But nevertheless, two quotes and then I'm going to close and we can go eat. John Piper says, Fasting proves the presence and fans the flame of that hunger. It is the physical exclamation point. What it means, it's the physical. It's our body. Fasting is a physical exclamation point at the end of this sentence. This much, oh God, I long for you and for the manifestations of your glory in this world. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied with God. It is because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. Mm. Do you hear that? Anyone convicted like me? How about Jesus? 
Maybe we should end with something he said. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And as I conclude, we'll, we'll close and we'll take communion. And we'll, we'll, we'll take of that flesh and that blood. Might I just invite anyone here that if you have not experienced full life, true life, the offers on the table, all you have to do is, is come to Christ and eat of the bread of life. Jesus says it in words that we all understand, food. <laughs> you need food. And in order to have spiritual life and full life and everlasting life, you need spiritual food and you need Christ. So I'd invite you today to give your life to Jesus. Just call upon the name of the Lord. You'll be saved. Eat the bread of life and you'll never hunger or thirst again. Jesus promises us that. And for the rest of us, we have some stuff to chew on in regards to food and fasting. Would you pray with me?